to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This particular study guide is going to kick off a little series I'm doing about the American presidents in the build-up to the American Civil War. We're going to be looking at the presidents from Martin Van Buren to James Buchanan with some special non-presidential guests in between. I'm really excited for this series. We're going to have at least one special episode with a co-host that I'm really looking forward to. I decided to do this series because one, I wanted a little bit of a break from Europe, and two, I spent two years working with high school students doing American history, and now is the time of year where students doing American history really start learning about the build-up to the American Civil War, so I thought I'd honor that point in my life by going back and doing it on the podcast. So I'm super excited to do this series. I decided not to start with Andrew Jackson because I just really, really don't like Andrew Jackson and not in that fun hating him the way I hate James II, where it would actually be enjoyable for me to do a subject on him. He just exhausts me with all of his racism. But if you want a really awesome and good humorous look Andy Jackson, I would highly recommend listening to the Totalis Rinkium American Presidents look at Andy Jackson. Those two lads just completely do him justice in a way that I just could not do. So, moving on from that. In today's study guide, I'm going to be discussing Martin Van Buren, the second shortest president in terms of height, not in terms of how long he was president for. In high school, if you learned about Martin Van Buren, it was probably in terms of his bromance with Andrew Jackson and nothing else. But his study guide includes petticoats, a Canadian lumberjack or two, and a late-in-life redemption story. Let's begin. Martin Van Buren was born December 5th, 1782 in Kinderhook, New York, which means he technically was born during the American Revolution. Yes, the fighting had ended, the Battle of Yorktown had finished, but the Treaty of Paris hadn't been signed and ratified yet, so we are technically still in the American Revolution. His parents are Abraham and Maria Van Buren. His father owned an inn in the town of Kinderhook, which was decently popular. Both Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr visited the inn, which meant it was doing really well by the standards of 1780s New York. Both Abraham and Maria Van Buren came from Dutch families who had been living in the United States for several generations, but still spoke Dutch, which was not uncommon in upstate New York. Maria had actually been married before she met Abraham, and from her first marriage, she had three children. Maria and Abraham Van Buren had five children, and Martin was the middle child. He had two older sisters, Derek and Hannah, who also went by the name Jane for some reason, and two younger brothers, Lawrence and Abraham. Growing up, 
Martin attended the local school where he learned English as his second language. Martin Van Buren is the only U.S. president to date who learned English as a second language, which is a fun fact that you can pull out at cocktail parties and be the coolest kid in the room. After graduating that local school, he attended Kinderhook Academy, where he learned Latin, and after Kinderhook Academy, he briefly went to a seminary in a nearby town before finishing his education in 1796 when he was 14. Martin Van Buren did not go to college. Instead, he got a job working for Peter and Francis Sylvester, local lawyers. During his time working for the Sylvesters, Martin Van Buren got a bit of a reputation for not really knowing how to dress well and for wearing really poor-fitting clothes, and the, and the Sylvesters had to sit him down and teach him how to dress appropriately, which had a huge impact on the young Martin Van Buren. For the rest of his life, he was really concerned about his appearance, which would lead to some pretty personal attacks against him. After his time with the Sylvesters, he got sent off to New York City, where he began working for this guy, William Van Ness. William Van Ness was an associate of Aaron Burr and actually served as Burr's second in the infamous duel with Alexander Hamilton, where Alexander Hamilton ended up dying. During his time working with William Van Ness, Martin Van Buren's political beliefs started shifting. He began moving from a more federalist belief in government, where he thought that the federal government should sort of be running everything more top-down to a more democratic Republican belief in things that really emphasized small federal government and more state power. During his time working for William Van Ness, Martin Van Buren starts getting more and more involved in New York state politics. He works on a congressional election for William Van Ness's brother, and William Van Ness's brother wins this election. This is the first but not last successful local election that Martin Van Buren is going to be involved in. In 1803, when Martin Van Buren is 21, he passes the New York State Bar and is able to practice law on his own. Four years later, in February 1807, Martin Van Buren gets married. His wife is a childhood friend and his first cousin, Hannah Hose. Martin and Hannah both come from Dutch backgrounds. They'd known each other growing up, which isn't surprising given the whole cousin thing because welcome to the early 1800s. Of course he's going to marry his cousin. The two end up having five sons, one of whom is going to die in childhood, but the surviving sons do manage to be fairly successful in later life. One of his sons, John, is going to become the Attorney General of New York. Another one, Martin Jr., is going to eventually become Martin Van Buren's secretary. And then another Smith Thompson Van Buren will be his special assistant. Basically, all the sons are going to get involved in politics and do pretty well for themselves through more than a little bit of nepotism. The same year that he marries Hannah, 
Martin Van Buren starts getting involved in New York State politics. He gets involved in the governor's race by supporting the winning candidate, Daniel Tompkins. Thanks to supporting the winning candidate, Martin is given a position in a local probate court, and he will serve in that office for the next six years, until 1813. In 1813, Martin runs for a seat in the state Senate, and he wins. He will serve in the state Senate from 1813 until 1820 as a Democratic-Republican. It makes sense that Martin Van Buren is a Democratic-Republican. This is during the War of 1812. The Democratic-Republicans are very firmly on the ascension. It's the years of James Madison, James Monroe. We're getting into the era of good feelings. During this time period, he's going to also be serving as the Attorney General of New York from 1815 to 1819 because, hey, why not serve two wildly different positions at the same time? In 1819, his wife Hannah dies from tuberculosis. This is really devastating for Martin Van Buren. He never remarries, and the same year that his wife dies, he steps down from being Attorney General of the state. During Martin's time in state Senate, he gets decently involved in the War of 1812, which, as we might recall from high school history class, is one of those early American wars where America aggressively doesn't win, but they also don't exactly lose. It's the War of 1812 that's really going to put some key figures like Andrew Jackson and William Henry Harrison on the map, and it's in the War of 1812 that the White House gets burnt down, but other than that, we don't need to worry that much about it. During the war, Martin Van Buren is going to help pass some state bills that increase the size of the New York militia and ensure that New York New York state soldiers actually get paid. He's going to do some work to make the New York militia more effective. He's going to help prosecute the U.S. general who lost control of Detroit to the British. Martin Van Buren's really going to make a name for himself during the War of 1812, not as a fighter, but as someone who's very, very pro-army, which is really helpful if you want to get ahead in American politics. As it turns out, the average U.S. citizen likes to vote for a pro-military guy. After the war, Martin Van Buren is going to work to get the Erie Canal built, and he will eventually get himself onto the Board of Regents for the University of the State of New York system. So he's definitely getting things done during the War of 1812 and afterwards in the state government. While the war is going on, one other kind of big thing happens for Martin Van Buren that's going to have ramifications down the line. The Van Buren household has a slave named Tom. And I know this sounds really weird because when we think about New York State, we usually don't think about slavery. But slavery was legal in New York. It's just that New York had this system known as manumission, which meant that slavery was slowly 
going to be shifted out. And in 1814, it was in this process of slowly being shifted out. And that's when his slave, Tom, ran off. And when his slave ran off, Martin Van Buren legally could have tried to get him back. But Martin Van Buren was like, nah, whatever, I'm not going to make an effort to get the slave back. And this is the first time we see hints that maybe Martin Van Buren personally doesn't believe in slavery all that much. So that's a little bit of what's going on when Martin Van Buren is serving in the New York State Senate. By 1817, Martin Van Buren starts getting involved in political organizing. He sets up what's known as the Bucktails, aka a group of Democratic Republican politicians within New York State. Pretty soon, he has the Bucktails include all of New York State, which basically makes it the first statewide political party. He has the Bucktails very much focus on party loyalty and rewarding those who are loyal to the party with appointments to office. Pretty soon, Martin Van Buren gets the nickname The Little Magician for how good he was at getting these appointments through and getting people to fall in line with what he wanted and because he's so short. He's only five foot six inches tall. As a result, Martin Van Buren really makes patronage slash the spoil system a thing. And patronage in the spoil system is going to continue to be a thing for most of the rest of the 1800s. Thanks to Martin Van Buren's success with the party system in New York State, this will become a model for the National Democratic Party system under Andrew Jackson later on in the 1820s. By 1820, Martin Van Buren has made enough of a name for himself within New York State that he gets appointed to help rewrite New York's state constitution. He's very pro-expanding voting rights, but not pro-universal male suffrage. He thinks there should be some sort of property requirement to vote, which makes him a bit more conservative than the rest of the Democratic Party. In 1821, Martin Van Buren runs and wins election to become a senator to New York. He's no longer just on the state level. He stepped on to the national stage. As a New York senator, he is focused on internal improvements, especially internal improvements that are focused in New York State, like the Erie Canal. However, Martin Van Buren is really going to change his opinions on internal improvements after 1824, but we're not quite there yet. In 1824, his runaway slave, Tom, is found in Massachusetts. Technically, Tom would be free in three years due to New York's gradual emancipation law that I already talked about. And Martin Van Buren tells the guy who found Tom that he could have Tom if he promises not to hurt Tom. But this guy is like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to let him go free. And this allows Tom to get his freedom without having to be a slave again without actually alienating Martin Van Buren from Southerners within the Democratic Party who didn't actually want Martin Van Buren to officially free Tom. 
this is not going to be the last time that we see Martin Van Buren pretty successfully walk the line between abolition and slavery parties within the United States at the time. Things beyond Martin Van Buren finding his one new rice slave happened in 1824. It is also a major election year. There are about five different candidates for the presidency, and Martin Van Buren starts out being in support of this guy Crawford, who technically is the official Democratic Party nominee, and as a result, Van Buren does win some votes to be the nominee for vice president, but then he ends up being like, oh wait, Crawford is in no way going to win the presidency, and ends up throwing his support to this guy you may have heard of named Andrew Jackson. And that ends up being a really great choice, because as it turns out, in the 1824 election, Andrew Jackson does win the popular vote. But he does not win the Electoral College. So the election goes to the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives, being the hot mess that it is, gives the election to John Quincy Adams for some complicated reasons. Van Buren doesn't agree with this and is going to spend the next of, and is going to spend the next four years undermining John Quincy Adams at every turn. He's really going to oppose John Quincy Adams' whole agenda of internal improvements. Basically, John Quincy Adams and his unofficial second-in-command, Henry Clay, have this thing called the American system, where they want to federally raise taxes and use it to pay for internal improvements like roads and canals and sort of have a large-scale level of federal intervention, which traditionally Democrats don't love. Even though Martin Van Buren historically had loved the idea of internal intervention in New York State. But as soon as John Quincy Adams does it, Martin Van Buren is no, no, no about the entire thing. And then Martin Van Buren manages to become the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, which gives him a ton of power, especially over legal proceedings. He tries to pass a law that says the Supreme Court would need a supermajority to make laws unconstitutional, which never quite happens, but it prevents John Quincy Adams from being able to do a lot of things. By the time the 1828 election comes around, John Quincy Adams is not in a great position politically, and Martin Van Buren has really thrown himself into the Andrew Jackson campaign. He's really involved in the campaign and basically unifies the Democratic Republicans towards Andrew Jackson and helps create the Democratic Party. During the campaign, he really focuses on Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia and makes sure that those four states, which have a pretty large population, vote for Andrew Jackson. He also works to make sure that New York State votes for Andrew Jackson over John Quincy Adams, even though politically New York is more likely to go in a more John Quincy Adams direction than an Andrew Jackson direction. John Qu Martin Van Buren goes as far as running for the governor of New York to drum up support for Andrew Jackson. And it works. Both Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson win 
New York State. Andrew Jackson wins the 1828 election in a landslide. After Andrew Jackson wins the presidency in 1828, he appoints Martin Van Buren to be Secretary of State in a kind of sketchy secret deal, which is pretty hypocritical of Andrew Jackson because... Well, that was a big part of the criticism that both he and Van Buren had been leveling towards John Quincy Adams in 1824. Now that Martin Van Buren is Secretary of State, he basically is next in line to be the president. Because in the early 1800s, it was the Secretary of State and not so much the vice president that was next in line to the presidency. While Martin Van Buren is Secretary of State, he honestly doesn't have all that much to do. There isn't a ton of international drama in the late 1820s, early 1830s, but he does get a fair amount done. He gets the United States access to the Black Sea and negotiates a pretty good deal with the Ottoman Empire. He improves trade with the British West Indies and settles some land claims in France. However, he is unable to figure out the border between Maine and Canada and what the border between Oregon and Canada can do. He also is unable to figure out what the relationship should be between Mexico and the U.S. when it comes to Texas. And this is going to be an issue that he will have to return to later on in his presidency. So that's what's going on early on in his term as Secretary of State. But the foreign affairs aren't really what's going to be driving him early on in Andrew Jackson's presidency. Instead, Martin Van Buren is going to be having to deal with some slightly more domestic concerns. That's right, we have one of my favorite moments of early U.S. history to talk about, the Petticoat Affair. Basically, Andrew Jackson has a Secretary of War named Thomas Eaton, and Thomas Eaton marries this woman named Peggy, who doesn't have the best social standing. She is the daughter of a tavern owner, and this marriage causes a massive scandal because Jackson's niece, who happens to be the acting first lady, refuses to allow Peggy into Washington society. And the vice president's wife also refuses to recognize Peggy. Andrew Jackson is pissed about this because it reminds him of how his own wife, Rachel, had been socially ostracized due to her bigamy and how that may or may not have led to her death. Martin Van Buren's wife is dead, so he doesn't really have a reason to ostracize Peggy, and he ends up befriending her and her husband, which makes Andrew Jackson really like Martin Van Buren. This whole thing causes a ton of drama between the various members of Andrew Jackson's cabinet, who are all being super, super petty. To break the drama, Martin Van Buren offers to resign, which allows Andrew Jackson to force everyone who ostracized Peggy Eaton to resign as well. And basically, everyone 
does get forced out. Once Martin Van Buren resigns, Andrew Jackson immediately appoints him to be the ambassador of England. But he does this in a slightly sketchy, under-the-table way, and Martin Van Buren's appointment ends up getting blocked in the Senate by John C. Calhoun's whose wife had been a total bitch to Peggy Eaton and who by now doesn't really like either Andrew Jackson or Martin Van Buren, which is awkward because John C. Calhoun is theoretically the vice president. Martin Van Buren is like, yeah, I'm going to peace out of Washington, D.C. for a bit, and he spends the next few months traveling around Europe having a grand old time. In 1832, when Andrew Jackson is running for re-election, Martin Van Buren comes back to the U.S. and gets nominated to be Andrew Jackson's vice president. Because by now it's pretty clear that Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun are not a match made in heaven anymore. Some Southern Democrats try to block the nomination of Martin Van Buren to be the vice president because of Martin Van Buren's support for a pro-Northern tariff that is hurting the South, but it doesn't really go anywhere, especially after Martin Van Buren promises that he will not interfere in slavery, and Martin Van Buren ends up winning the nomination to be vice president, and Andrew Jackson wins in a massive landslide. As vice president, Martin Van Buren is going to have to deal with some pretty serious fallout from the drama of Andrew Jackson's first term, aka the nullification crisis and Andrew Jackson's veto on the rechartering of the Bank of the United States. Both of these are kind of messy, and honestly, I would spend an entire class on them for my students if I were still teaching, but let's go through them really, really quick. So, the nullification crisis. Basically, in 1828, we have this tariff on cotton and textiles, and the South is really annoyed because it's really helping the North, but kind of screwing over the South. In South Carolina, where then Vice President John C. Calhoun is really getting impacted by it, and it gets to the point where South Carolina kind of threatens to not pay the tariff and kind of threatens to leave the U.S. over it. And in response, Andrew Jackson threatens to send in federal troops unless South Carolina backs down, and it works. But we have a lot of unease and unresolved questions about who wins, states or federal governments, which definitely will not come to bite anyone in the ass later on. And then we have the bank veto. Basically, in 1831, the president of the National Bank pushes to recharter the National Bank five years early because he knows that Andrew Jackson hates the National Bank and Andrew Jackson vetoes it and does some really sketchy stuff to weaken the bank, which leads to Andrew Jackson getting censured by Congress and leads to the destruction of the National Bank. So we don't have a federal bank, we only have some super weak and slightly corrupt state banks. All of this results in a whole lot of drama for newly appointed Vice President Martin Van Buren. Van Buren gets threatened by a senator from Mississippi and has to start carrying a gun around for his own protection. So that's a fun way to start out your term as vice president. However, Martin Van Buren does manage 
to get some compromise reached within the Senate, specifically around the tariff. Annie hopes lead to some cooling of the tension with South Carolina, which is a good thing. Beyond that, he doesn't do a ton of policy stuff as vice president. He's mostly working on keeping the Democrats united together around Andrew Jackson and limiting non-democratic opposition to Andrew Jackson. In 1836, Andrew Jackson says, yeah, I'm not running for re-election, and he makes it pretty damn clear that he would like Martin Van Buren to be the next president. Martin Van Buren gets unanimously nominated at the 1836 Democratic Convention and runs on a pretty standard Democratic platform. He says the usual limited federal powers, yay states' rights, opposing abolition, allowing slavery to exist where it will already exist, no new national bank, etc., etc. So the 1836 election will be Van Buren and the Democrats against the Whigs. At this point in time, the Whig Party basically just stand for being against Andrew Jackson. That's it. The Whigs are extremely unorganized. They're so split that they run three different candidates. So while Martin Van Buren only wins 50.9% of the popular vote, he does extremely well in the Electoral College. He wins 170 electoral votes, while the next closest candidate only wins 73. And as a result, he pretty easily gets the presidency. There's a teeny bit of drama over who will be the vice president because his vote, because his choice initially doesn't win a majority of votes in the Electoral College, but his running mate does eventually get the vice presidency. Huzzah! So, let's talk about Martin Van Buren as president. Spoiler alert, his presidency isn't that long or that successful. There's a reason that Martin Van Buren is a one-term president. Honestly, there's a reason that every president between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln is going to be a one-term president, and that's because none of them do a great job. And actually, that's also because two of them are going to die before they serve their entire turn. Anyway, let's dive in. Just as a quick little side note as we begin Martin Van Buren's presidency, he was actually the first president to be born as a U.S. citizen. While he was technically born before the American Revolution was over, since he was born after the Battle of Yorktown, the U.S. like no longer belonged to England. Every president before him was born while the U.S. was still a colony of England, and thus were born as British citizens. So that's pretty neat. So let's move on to his presidency now. Martin Van Buren's inauguration was the first time that the sitting president and the new president rode to the ceremony together, which showed how tied Martin Van Buren was to Andrew Jackson. And while that started out as a good thing for Martin Van Buren, by the end of the presidency, that was really really 
going to hurt him. And to continue that trend, Martin Van Buren kept most of Andrew Jackson's cabinet ministers as his own and is going to continue most of Andrew Jackson's policies for good or for ill. As president, he's not going to have a first lady for the first two years because his wife had died several decades before he became president. In fact, for the first two years, he doesn't have a White House hostess. He's going to be running all the White House events completely on his own, and it kind of leads to him having a bit of a nervous breakdown because hosting a ton of parties is really difficult. But luckily for him, all four of his surviving sons are single and ready to mingle, and this makes the White House a really fun and happening place, which basically is the only highlight of the Van Buren presidency. In 1838, his son Abraham gets married, and Abraham's wife, Angelica, is like, hey, I will be hostess. Angelica has amazing taste and luckily for everyone she's related to Dolly Madison and can go to Dolly Madison for advice so Angelica is able to throw these amazing White House parties which initially is awesome but then Angelica and by extension Martin Van Buren are going to be criticized for being too extravagant and too over the top. Martin Van Buren's presidency is going to be defined by a major economic downturn. Technically, this economic depression starts at the very end of Andrew Jackson's second term, but the majority happens during Martin Van Buren's presidency, so he's going to be the one to be blamed. This economic depression is really based on England pulling money out of American markets, which hurts American banks. And since Andrew Jackson got rid of the National Bank, which was such a genius idea, there's less credit available, which is kind of a mess. It all comes to a head on May 10th, 1837, less than two months into Martin Van Buren's term, because remember in the 1830s, inaugurations happened in March when banks in New York run out of hard currency and can't convert paper money into gold or silver and basically stop giving out money. This has a huge ripple effect, which is basically why it's good to have a national bank and leads to a major depression. We have super high unemployment. People are out of work. The economy sort of goes into a death spiral. And Martin Van Buren kind of sits back and doesn't do anything. He refuses to recharter a national bank because that would be against Andrew Jackson. He thinks that a limited federal government is good and that staying out of the economy will end up helping things. Instead, he pushes for an independent treasury that could restrict paper money and inflation. And this idea fails. Meanwhile, the Whigs are like, no, we should recharter the National Bank. Rechartering the National Bank will allow for us to have credit. It will allow for us to have hard currency. It will reverse the economic depression. And instead, it doesn't happen. And it takes 
the U.S. a really long time to recover from this economic panic. As a result, in the 1838 midterms, the Democrats just get whipped, and the Whigs win a majority. The Whigs get a Whig Speaker of the House. The Democrats just completely lose, and it's really, really bad for Martin Van Buren. And the whole economic crisis isn't the only thing that he's having to deal with. He's also having to deal with Texas. In 1836, Texas becomes an independent country. Basically, in 1835, Mexico had created a new constitution, and part of this new constitution had outlawed slavery. Texas, which by then was part of Mexico, had a lot of Americans living there, and Americans in Texas really, really liked having slaves and did not want to give up their free and forced labor. So they revolt from Mexico, and we get fun things like the Battle of the Alamo. And by April 1836, Texas is an independent country that is free from Mexico. Andrew Jackson wants to annex Texas and make it part of the United States, but that would cause drama with Mexico and make northern abolitionists mad, etc., etc. And the question over whether or not to annex Texas doesn't quite get resolved by the time Andrew Jackson leaves the presidency, so it becomes Martin Van Buren's issue. By August 1837, it's pretty clear that Texas is not going to become part of the United States at that point in time, because if it did, it would disrupt that really delicate balance of free and slave states. By 1838, Texas withdraws its offer to allow itself to be annexed into the United States as a state, but it is not the last time that the Texas question pops up into United States politics. Right after the Texas question is partially resolved, Martin Van Buren then has to deal with drama with England because of Canada. Oh, Canada. Basically, Canada is having some really fun rebellions in 1837 and 1838 over how England is governing it under the reign of William Lyon Mackenzie. Canadian rebels use the steamboat called the Caroline to fight against the English, and when British soldiers capture the Caroline, an American is killed. And technically, the death happens on the U.S. side of the border, which makes it a bit of an international incident, and everyone's like, oh no, are the U.S. and England going to go to war again over Canada? Everyone remembers how well that happened in 1812. Luckily for Martin Van Buren, that rebellion collapses before any major drama before the U.S. and England can happen, but to be safe, Van Buren promises U.S. neutrality in regards to Canada in January 1838. But once that bit of drama with Canada is resolved, we get a new bit of Canadian drama in regards to the main border. Both the U.S. and Canada want land near the Aroostook River, which leads 
to a literal shouting match between lumberjacks in December 1838 in what's known as the Battle of Caribou. The governor of Maine gets super excited and leads this chant of Maine and her soil or blood and starts building some forts on the border. And Martin Van Buren is like, dude, what are you doing? We are not going to war over some fucking lumberjacks. Eventually, Martin Van Buren is able to ramp everything down. We have another round of negotiations, and there's no fighting over the lumberjacks. But everyone's really pissed off with Martin Van Buren because nationalism and maple syrup. So yeah, that's the Canadian drama that you definitely did not learn about in high school, which is kind of a shame because it's really fun. And yet another time that Canada kind of kicked our asses. Sorry, Canada, we shouldn't make so many jokes about you because so far you're two for two when it comes to fighting America. Martin Van Buren might not be doing so well when it comes to fighting, but there is one area of foreign policy where he does do a pretty good job, but when he does do a good job, it is kind of in terms of human rights violations, which isn't so great. And that is his policy towards Native Americans. Yes, he does win these battles, but it comes at the cost of some pretty epic human rights violations. Andrew Jackson set up the federal policy of moving Native Americans west of the Mississippi River because who cares that they were there first and that, you know, it was their ancestral land. There's gold in them hills. So yeah, kick them out. And Martin Van Buren continues that policy. In 1838, he has the U.S. Army forcibly move all tribes that aren't complying with that policy, even though the U.S. Supreme Court was like, yeah, no, you can't do that, in a case known as Worcester v. Georgia. This decision is known as the Trail of Tears. So yes, technically, Andrew Jackson isn't responsible for the Trail of Tears because it did happen in Martin Van Buren's presidency, but he fucking set it into motion. So yeah, let's blame Andrew Jackson because Andrew Jackson sucks. Martin Van Buren also got involved with a war with the Seminole tribes in Florida. Even though the U.S. Army wins quite a few battles, it was fully impossible for the army to win because of the Seminole tribe's heavy use of guerrilla warfare, and the U.S. Army ends up having to sue for peace. This is the first time that a native tribe in the U.S. forces the U.S. Army to sue for peace, so that was super exciting. However, the peace ends in 1839, and the war continues. Martin Van Buren gets criticized for this. Most of the criticism is for the fact that the army had to sue for peace and that it takes so long for them to win, and less for the fact that the army is using some really, really brutal tactics against the Seminole tribes that in 2019 would definitely be considered war crimes and crimes against humanity because welcome to the 1830s, bitch. As president, Martin Van Buren is also against abolition. Yeah, Martin Van Buren just isn't doing a great job as a human being right now. 
because he feels like it divides the country too much. However, while Martin Van Buren isn't a huge fan of freeing slaves, he also doesn't want slavery to expand into new territories. Let's remember that for later on in his life. The big test of Martin Van Buren's views on slavery happens in 1839 with this case called the Armistead case. Basically, in 1839, the Spanish ship, the Amistad, lands in New York. It has over 50 people from Africa on it who had been illegally sold into slavery. When the ship lands, the U.S. government takes it into custody and has to decide what to do with these people who had been illegally sold into slavery. The Spanish government says, hey, you have to turn over the boat and all the people on the boat over to us, and yeah, we might sell them back into slavery. But the District Court of New York says, eh, the people on the boat who were illegally sold into slavery are free. And this makes Spain super angry. It also makes slave owners in the South extremely angry because the District Court's decision gives some legal precedent towards free slaves and towards maybe ending slavery in the United States. There are a bunch of appeals, and eventually this case makes its way to the Supreme Court. It becomes such a huge case that John Quincy Adams, who had been a president and is now a member of the House of Representatives, ends up arguing before the Supreme Court on behalf of the freed slaves. Eventually, the Supreme Court says, yeah, these slaves were wrongfully enslaved and are now free. And this is huge. It says that the Supreme Court and the American judicial system are allowed to get involved in abolition. The Supreme Court and the American judicial system can step in and free slaves. This is going to have some pretty epic ramifications down the line. No spoilers. The last big thing that happens in Martin Van Buren's presidency has huge ramifications in 2019. In fact, it probably impacts your day-to-day life, and that is the invention of the word OK. OK probably was invented because of Martin Van Buren. It may have come from a nickname for him, Old Kinderhook, which came from an 1839 article about Martin Van Buren. It also might not have. We honestly don't know. But if it did, that's pretty cool. In 1840, we have another presidential election. Martin Van Buren pretty easily wins renomination from the Democratic Party, but he's up against a much more united Whig party. And he is pretty unpopular thanks to the whole economic crisis and his lack of handling about whether or not Texas should join the United States. The Whigs nominate war hero William Henry Harrison, and the Whigs go pretty dirty in the 1840 election. They give him the nickname Martin Van Ruin and portray him as this out-of-touch elite, which is pretty ironic given that Martin Van Buren was the son of a tavern owner who didn't even finish 
high school. The Wicks also really like to bring up the fact that his running mate had a common-law African-American wife, which, yeah, was true. And Martin Van Buren ends up losing pretty huge in the Electoral College. He only wins 60 electoral votes to William Henry Harrison's 234 votes. However, 80% of eligible voters voted in 1840, which is pretty cool, although remember, only white men could vote. After losing the 1840 election, Martin Van Buren moves back to Kinderhook, New York, and he'll pretty much live in Kinderhook, New York until his death. After 1840, Martin Van Buren starts to become more and more outspoken against slavery. This prevents him from being the Democratic nominee in 1844. By then, he's so against slavery that his old BFF, Andrew Jackson, is like, yeah, you shouldn't vote for this guy to be president, and the two basically fall out. After 1844, he openly supports anti-slavery laws like the Wilmo Proviso and says that he regrets some of his earlier support for laws that allowed slavery to spread, like the Missouri Compromise. In 1848, Martin Van Buren gets nominated by the very anti-slavery Free Soil Party, which I promise I will be discussing in more detail in later study guides. Even though the 1848 Free Soil Party didn't win any electoral votes, he did win 10% of the national vote in 1848, which is fucking huge for a third party candidate. Martin Van Buren continued to support the abolitionist movement and continued to be against slavery, although he did also continue to support the Democratic Party, which did put him in a bit of a rock in a hard place as the Democratic Party got more and more associated with the South and slavery. However, once Abraham Lincoln won, in 1860, he supported Abraham Lincoln and spoke out against succession and the need for the Union to stay united. In 1861, Martin Van Buren became really ill, and he never quite recovered. He died on July 24th, 1862, of asthma and heart failure at the age of 79. He's the only president to live during both the American Revolution and the Civil War. So, for those study guiders, because we still don't have a fun nickname for y'all, who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick, or not so quick, recap of the life of Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren was born in upstate New York to Dutch-speaking tavern owners. English was his second language, and he finished his schooling after high school. After he finished high school, at the age of 14, he started working for a lawyer, and he did a pretty good job of it. He got invited to work for a friend of Aaron Burr's down in New York City, and very quickly got involved in New York State politics. He got a name for himself for organizing Democratic politicians and basically creating the Democratic state party structure within New York State. He was able to put this leadership into practice on a national level and basically created the Democratic Party apparatus for Andrew Jackson. 
Martin Van Buren's friendship with Andrew Jackson had huge ramifications for both of them. While Andrew Jackson didn't win the 1824 election due to the infamous corrupt bargain between John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, Martin Van Buren did help his friend out. He served in the Senate during John Quincy Adams' presidency and did his best to make sure that John Quincy Adams got nothing done, which meant that Andrew Jackson was able to become president in 1828, and Andrew Jackson repaid the favor by making Martin Van Buren Secretary of State, which was a big fucking deal both then and now. Martin Van Buren didn't have a whole lot to do as Secretary of State, but he supported Andrew Jackson through the Petticoat Affair and was his BFF when Andrew Jackson's vice president, John C. Calhoun, could not be trusted. This meant that Andrew Jackson promoted Martin Van Buren to be the ambassador to England. This failed due to some political infighting within the Senate and the Jackson cabinet, and Martin Van Buren had to take a wee bit of a break. But this break wasn't for long. In 1832, Martin Van Buren became Andrew Jackson's vice president. He successfully managed to negotiate the drama around the nullification crisis and the veto of the National Bank and did a pretty good job as Andrew Jackson's second vice president. Once Andrew Jackson was finished serving out his second term, Martin Van Buren ran for the presidency in 1836 and easily won. Too bad that Martin Van Buren's own presidency was a hot mess due to Andrew Jackson's stupid decision to not charter the National Bank for a second time. Martin Van Buren had to deal with an epic economic crisis thanks to a lack of a National Bank, one that was not helped by Martin Van Buren's decision not to recharter the bank. Martin Van Buren also dealt with some drama with Canada and England, as well as indecision over what to do with Texas. He continued Andrew Jackson's policies of just gutting Native American populations and dealt with the slavery question by not dealing with the slavery question, which would continue to be a trend until about 1860. Thanks to the economic issues that plagued his presidency, Martin Van Buren handily lost re-election in 1840. After his presidency, he became an outspoken anti-slavery speaker, which culminated with him running as a third party anti-slavery free soiler in 1848. Even though he didn't win any electoral votes as a free soiler, he did win 10% of the popular vote, which isn't too shabby for a third party candidate. Martin Van Buren ended up dying at the age of 79 in 1862 as the only president to live during both the American Revolution and the American Civil War. As a president, he didn't do that great of a job, but I do think history should be nicer to Martin Van Buren than it is because, one, he did create the idea of modern organized political parties, which is both good and bad, and because of how anti-slavery he was in his later life. Yes, he was super crappy towards Native Americans 
and he definitely deserves a spot in the bad place for that, but the work he did against slavery in the 1840s and 1850s is really cool and really underappreciated, and I don't think it cancels out the Trail of Tears, but it is something that we don't really talk about when we talk about Martin Van Buren, and we should talk about it more. So, for my research on Martin Van Buren, I mostly used Joel Silsby's essays on him for the Miller Center, Joel Silsby's book, Martin Van Buren in the Emergence of American Popular Politics, Edward Morse Shepard's book, Martin Van Buren, and Ted Winmer's book, Martin Van Buren, the American President's Series. The next study guide will be skipping over William Henry Harrison because his presidency is really short. It doesn't quite deserve a full episode. Instead, I will be doing a tangent cast on him, which I will be releasing to everyone in addition to subscribers in addition to Patreons. The next full-length episode will be on John Tyler. Until then, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to chat, you can do so on the Twitter at sadgirlstudypod, or if you want to look at some cool memes about Martin Van Buren, because trust me, they exist, you can look at the Instagram at Sad Girl Study. As always, if you want to financially help out the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Sad Girl Study Guides. Remember, if you join at $5 a month or more, you get access to the really fun tangent casts. The next one will be about William Henry Harrison, but I will be publicly releasing that to everyone because I'm super nice like that. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review the podcast or else I'll be sad. Thanks!